Welcome to Money Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Even before the current surge in inflation, the cost of living attracted controversy. Many people believe that the true rate of inflation is consistently far higher than the official stats suggest. But is there any evidence to back up these claims? I want to know whether the changes to the way inflation is calculated have lowered official inflation numbers and what impact it has on us as investors. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask why does the Fed look at core PCE inflation rather than the CPI? Doesn't it care about food and energy prices? Okay, let's get into it. Is inflation rigged? I think it's fair to say that the general public thinks it might be. So in America, the Atlanta Fed did some research which showed that household expectations of inflation are consistently two percentage points higher than those of professional forecasters. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is that we're just more sensitive to price increases than decreases. So let's say you have a consumption basket. You don't think, oh, this one's cheaper than it was, you know, a year ago. You don't notice that. What you would notice is an increase. Yeah, I think that's kind of related to the loss aversion bias we've talked about before, right? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I think is that there are certain things which we can see more frequently and we're really sensitive to those things. And those are the ones which are most visible to us. So it could be groceries, it could be gasoline or petrol, but those are the ones we tend to focus on. So people feel that the cost of living has gone up much more than inflation says over the previous decades. Or more importantly, I think, given an average salary, they think you could afford a better quality of life in the past, which is also related to wage growth. So there is a kind of confounding factor there. But really, that's what people think about when they think about inflation. It's how much better is my quality of living than it was at some point in the past or as it was for my parents, say. I mean, it must be quite a challenging thing to be objective and measure inflation in the economy. It can't be an easy task for the statistical agencies. And nobody loves them. You know, I mean, I I think statistical agencies deserve a little love. You know, you should go out and hug a statistician from your national body because they do a really difficult job and they get a lot of stick for it. And people come out with these crazy conspiracy theories, which I think are just ungrounded. Yeah, let's get into it before we dismiss them. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's fair to say that the way inflation is calculated has undergone significant changes over the years. It goes way back, actually. Beginning in 1933, there was panels run by the American Statistical Association, which tried to find like flaws in how CPI was calculated. And when you think about it, there are challenges. It's not that simple, is it? It can't just be like, oh, here's a basket of goods. We'll just see how much the price goes up each time. Because there's four main factors which make it difficult. Consumers have substitution behavior, as it's called. What they're buying will change over time. There's also a change in the quality of the products. So you're not comparing like for like as such. Then you've got new products and goods and services which are introduced all the time. So how do you account for those? And also the way they're sold changes. So you're going to have new categories of stores and new channels of product distribution. So (laughs) I don't envy the statistical bodies trying to do this job. And of course, you have to come up with a standardised consumption basket, which is the kind of average for the entire population in your country. So there is an inherent political bias here, which is, Is it the consumption basket for someone who's wealthy? Is it for someone who's poor? You know, how do you decide what the items that go into the basket are? Yeah, is it someone buying champagne or is it someone buying Fanta like you? Yeah, exactly. Or someone with fancy taste, you know. I I think that makes a massive difference. 
Yeah, so maybe let's define what is CPI inflation, because this is the measure we're talking about here. Well, really, for the US, for example, CPI is consumer price inflation. And what they do is they have a basket of consumer goods and services, which is standardised, but which does change over time based on a survey. And they monitor the prices of thousands of goods and services through time and work out how those prices for that consumption basket has changed. And they have a weight for each of the components in the basket. For example, shelter makes up a large proportion of the basket. And then they take that weighted average and come up with an average increase in the price of goods and services. Yeah, so the goal of CPI is to measure the percentage by which consumers would have to increase their spending to be as well off with the new prices as they were with the old prices. Now, the phrase as well off there is doing a lot of (laughs) heavy lifting because there's various (laughs) different ways of thinking of this. And that's, I think, where the controversy potentially comes from. A lot of people feel that if inflation is 2% year over year, say, they feel if I buy exactly what I bought last year, this year, I should have to pay 2% more. But that's not actually what it means, or at least not anymore. So I understand you've been radicalised recently. Is that right, Michael? (laughs) Well, in research for this podcast, I did spend quite a lot of time on the Shadow Stats website, which is the one that everyone quotes. Now, it's a a website that looks like it was designed in 1998. It probably was. Which doesn't help its credibility. And it makes a number of claims about why CPI no longer does a good job of measuring inflation, at least as consumers in the US imagine it to be. So I guess a lot of the criticisms of the way that official stats are measured centre around a couple of key points. So, for example, as you adjust the types of things which you buy over time, how do you substitute new items for old items? So what's Shadow Stats' problem with that? So the claim is basically that if steak is getting a lot more expensive, people will stop buying steak and instead buy hamburgers. And so a substitution-based model says, oh, the change in price isn't as bad as it is in reality because you're substituting hamburger for steak. Now, the statistical agencies say that's nonsense. Because if you actually look at the substitutions which they've got, they're very tight. So, for example, they wouldn't substitute hamburger for steak, but they would substitute ground beef in Chicago for another type of ground beef in Chicago, which is quite reasonable, I think. And I'd have no beef with that. (laughs) Oh, good, Romin. And some consumers actually don't care that much about substitution. So I know my daughter, who's 18 months old, pretty much likes everything we give her. You can give her beef, she's happy, chicken, she's happy. We gave her duck for the first time the other week, Romin. And she's learning animal sounds. And in between every mouthful, she was going, quack, quack. Mm." (laughs) (laughs) She hasn't figured out what had to happen before it made it onto her plate. No. I mean, there is a real question of how do consumers respond to changing prices? So the Bureau for Labor Statistics, which calculates CPI in the US, has a nice example around orange juice, which is in the category of non-frozen, non-carbonated juice and drinks. (laughs) It says, suppose that a store lowers the price of one brand of orange juice while leaving all the other prices the same. Now, how would a consumer respond? Could be in several different ways. Some consumers will consume more orange juice. They'll just buy more because the price is lower. Some will buy the affected brand of orange juice rather than other brands. That's the substitution. Some will buy orange juice at this store rather than other stores because now it's cheaper here. Some will buy orange juice instead of grapefruit juice because they're substituting by getting a cheaper juice. And some will buy more orange juice now rather than later. So they're sort of bringing forward their consumption. So there's all these different ways consumers change their behavior 
when prices change. And modelling that is difficult and has changed over time. Now, the actual weightings, the way things are combined, have changed considerably. So there was a big shift in 1999 when the calculation of CPI switched from something called Las Perez. Yeah, I was pronouncing that Las Perez when I googled the pronunciation. Well, actually, it depends on where you're from. I'm from England, so I say Las Perez. Las Perez. Okay, so uh, if you're German, you say Las Pierres. If you're French, you say Las Pierres. All right, but what is this thing you're giving us a million pronunciations for? (laughs) It's just that we did such a bad job with the Scandinavian name in a previous episode that I just thought we should redeem ourselves. If we throw enough out there, one will be right. Well, let's call it Les Pierres. But the idea is that you keep the weights constant of your consumption basket as you calculate the change in average price. So if somebody bought more orange juice because it was cheaper, you wouldn't adjust the price weighting. Yeah, so my preferred brand of orange juice doesn't change over time, even when the price of another one drops. So there's no adjustment for the price change. And that's a kind of worst case. Whereas if you do buy more of the cheaper brand, which is what most people would do, of course, then you'd call that geometric averaging. And that's what the basket's been doing in the US for CPI since 1999. So maybe let's work through an example. I know you've got one around chocolate bars and peanut bars, Romin. Yeah, so the example here is about two alternatives, right? So chocolate bars, which are a dollar each, and peanut bars, which are also a dollar each. So she starts off spending $4 a week, so two of each bar. So that's the consumption basket. Two peanut bars and two chocolate bars. But then what happens? Something terrible happens, and chocolate bars quadruple in price to $4. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) A disaster for the chocolate consumer. But how are we going to respond? Old Las Perez formula, your basket stays the same. Two peanut, that's $2. Two chocolate, mm, that's now $8. So $10. So you've gone from $4 to $10. That's a big jump in inflation. So that's the kind of worst case if you assume that the consumption pattern's the same. But under geometric weighting, you actually have a lot less of the thing which is more expensive. So now you just buy one chocolate bar for $4 and four peanut bars for $1 each. Okay, so that's $8. So the geometric mean formula, which is what got introduced in the 90s, actually means that in that scenario, inflation for that category of good has not gone up to the full $10. It's gone up to $8. Now, the question is, is that a sensible change in how inflation is calculated? I think it's more realistic. I mean, the other extreme is that you switch completely to the cheapest good, which again sets a kind of floor for the inflation increase. No one wants four peanut bars from him. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, you've got to assume something. And I think all they're doing is trying to be reasonable in their assumptions. Yeah, I mean, it seems reasonable to me. Like you say, the extremes would be the old way, which is like $10, that's the maximum. Or as you say, full substitution, which would be $4 and no inflation. It's got to be somewhere in between the two. And they've gone for $8 is what this formula says. But would you be as satisfied with one fewer chocolate bar a week, but more peanut bars? And, you know, this is just a sort of very narrow example, but that plays out across the whole consumption basket, right? But I think as long as you're very careful with the substitutions, it's okay. So if it is just, you know, eggs in Boston, if you're buying one type of egg rather than another, do you really care when you have an omelette? Which was the egg provider? I like my Burford Browns. (laughs) (laughs) Now, sometimes these categories cease to exist. You know, it might be that Burford brands aren't even on offer anymore. 
Is it even worth living in that world? But sometimes substitution is not a matter of choice. It's just a matter of necessity. And so, you know, these things will change over time. Consumption patterns change over time. And somehow the statistical agency has to kind of muddle through and plaster over the cracks in the index and somehow come up with something which varies smoothly over time. Yeah, because that's the other example of substitution, isn't it, is technological evolution. So people stop buying audio cassettes and they've started buying mobile phones, right? That's a big change that happened over the last few decades. It's difficult to account for that. I mean, the other question is moving from that old model, the Les Perez index, to this geometric mean weighting. How much of an effect did that really have? And it's interesting that the Bureau for Labor Statistics in the US has sort of continued to make an experimental version of CPI with the old method. And it shows that moving to this new method did lower CPI, but it was only about 0.28 percentage points per year over a five-year period from 1999 to 2004, once they made this change. So it's not huge. And this is true of a lot of these different measures, which is that if you look at them over a very long period, they tend to converge on a similar answer, not always the same, but a similar answer. I mean, they introduced the substitution methodology because the feeling was that CPI was being overstated. And it's not just the US. This substitution modelling is the international standard and it's done in most countries. As long as it lies somewhere between those two extremes of just going for the cheapest thing and not caring about the price at all, I think the actual particular measure that you use is not really that important. Yeah, I guess the argument people make is that CPI is assuming we continually move to like cheaper and perhaps less quality goods over time. And this is the beefsteak example, right? Which is that I don't want to live a life where I have hamburger instead of steak. But the pushback from the Bureau for Labour Statistics is that, in fact, those two items aren't substituted. There are very tight within category substitutions, but steak is one category and hamburger meat is another. Yeah, I think that's critical because if it was done too broadly, then it really would start to not measure the changing cost of living effectively. I think the difficulty lies with something like a mobile phone, which has actually taken up the role of so many things in our lives, you know, like personal organisers. Do you remember those from the 80s? You probably don't. <laughs> I was about five years old when the 80s ended, so my personal <laughs> organising was, was not so uh, difficult. <laughs> But they used to have these things called filofaxes, which had all your kind of addresses and a diary and all this stuff. But, you know, that's basically dead and everything happens on a phone. So it's actually taken up so many categories. And so I think that's a problem. I don't know how they deal with that. I mean, that kind of leads us on to the second claim of shadow stats. So the first is substitution. And the second is called hedonic quality modelling which is how do the statistical agencies adjust for the changing quality of goods as features get added, as products change in size or in how long they last. And so these hedonic quality adjustments actually alter the rate of inflation on a per good basis by adjusting for these quality changes. Now, some of these are just really uncontroversial. So going back to chocolate bars, the chocolate bar becomes 20% smaller, but the price remains the same, then obviously you should adjust inflation to make it look like the price has gone up. And that's exactly what they do. For consumable goods, they use the weights, the physical weights of the products. The controversial thing is exactly what you hinted at there. Mobile phones, computers, televisions, things like that. So the argument here from shadow stats is that, let's say with a computer, from one year to the next, the price goes up, but also the process has got faster. So how should the inflation measure account for that changing quality? 
Well, what they sometimes do is something called a multivariate regression. So let's say you're looking at the price of TVs. Okay, so what affects the price of a TV? Well, the resolution of the screen certainly affects it. So higher resolution means a more expensive TV. Another thing might be the size of the TV. So you measure the diagonal size of the TV in inches, and that also affects the price. So they'll build a model based on those variables, and they'll look at a new substituted version of the TV. So let's say that HD TVs come along and a shop stops selling old TVs with standard definition. Well, how much more should you pay for the HD TV? Now, if you don't account for the fact that the quality of the HD TV is better, then you wouldn't be realistically accounting for the quality of the thing which you're buying. So this is where hedonic regression comes in. And it's not always an upward adjustment. Sometimes it's a downward adjustment in the price as well. Yeah. You could apply it to housing as well. What's the quality of a house? Well, obviously the size of it matters. The location might matter. The age of the house. So they do actually increase the rate of inflation effectively for the ageing of the housing stock. That's right. So that's how hedonic adjustment comes into it. But just coming back to televisions... I think sometimes what consumers care about is just how much does it cost me to buy a television? If it cost me $1,000 last year and now costs me $1,200, I think, oh man, it cost me $200 more to buy a TV. Like The pixels are a bit denser, the screen's a little bigger, but I'm still paying more money. Whereas the statistical agency's saying, yeah, but the quality's got better, so we're actually going to adjust the price to bring it into line to say TVs have not gone up in price. Potentially. Like That's in theory how it can work. I'd argue that the hedonic adjustments are actually quite sensible. I mean, like you say, sometimes it's a no-brainer where you get shrinkflation, they'd adjust for that. Yeah, well, that's when the chocolate bar gets smaller. But it's also true that they do adjustments for things like car tyres, like when the quality of those got better and they lasted for many more miles. You have to replace your car tyres less often, so that needs to be accounted for. But I think ultimately it's a subjective thing. If you're somebody who doesn't really care about the speed of the processor or how many megapixels you've got on your mobile phone camera, then yeah, for you, that increase in quality is kind of irrelevant and you're paying more for something you don't want. But I guess you could argue that, well, you could always buy a cheaper phone which doesn't have that and pay less. Yeah, and it's interesting the response in one of the papers I read from the BLS. They say, and I'll quote, Some might argue, for example, that when an inexpensive black and white television disappears from the market, the CPI should treat the full difference between its price and the price of a colour television as the price increase. This approach would be no more reasonable, however, than incorporating a large price decrease into the CPI when the Concorde supersonic transport stopped flying and consumers were forced to switch back to slower transatlantic flights. So it's an interesting (laughs) point, isn't it? But it would have seemed very unreasonable to do that. And the other point to make is that these quality adjustments actually only apply to a very small percentage of the goods in the consumption basket. So I think it's around 3% of ordinary consumer goods in CPI are subject to these quality revisions. Yeah, I mean, we talk about these technological things, which are changing all the time, but, you know, an orange is an orange is an orange. It's never going to change that much. Although I did get into things called ugly fruit at one point. I was obsessed with these weird things. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be much orange or tangerine innovation over the years. That's true. So I think hedonic quality adjustment, it's an interesting and, you know, nerdy thing. Like, how do you account for the changing quality of tech goods? But it makes very little difference to the overall inflation number. So like you, I think you do have to account for quality changes. But even if we didn't, it's not going to make a huge difference. But whatever the statistical agency does... 
you can bet that somebody's going to pick holes in it and say, look, this is a conspiracy to make the cost of living look cheaper. But why would they want to do that? What is the advantage to the government, say, of inflation being artificially lower than it really is? I guess you could say that, look, the quality of life is better under our rule than it was previously, or at least it's not more expensive to live. I mean, no politician would want to say, look, the quality of life is worse for you than it was for your parents. But people think that. At some point, that's going to happen, I think. (laughs) But it's interesting. If you look at shadow stats, the reason they give why this conspiracy, in inverted commas, came about is that a lot of benefits are linked to the rate of inflation. And there's annual cost of living adjustments to Social Security, for example, in the US. So if the government has a lower inflation figure, it has to pay out less money than it otherwise would have in Social Security next year. Another one is inflation-linked bonds. So for example, if you buy one of these UK inflation-linked gilts or in the US, if you buy tips, that will be linked to the rate of inflation. So if that's smaller, it actually costs less for the government to service its debt. And the UK, for example, if we look at the cost of servicing UK debt, recently it's surged because of the rate of inflation increasing massively. So the debt servicing costs, the coupon on those bonds, will increase in line with the rate of inflation. Okay, so we have established a motive then. (laughs) But they'd have to coerce the statistical body in order to fiddle the numbers. And I'm not convinced they'd do that. So to just wrap up on the shadow stats claims... So the first one was substitution, which we dealt with. Then there was the hedonic quality adjustments, which we've just talked about. And the third major claim they make about why inflation may be understated is around how housing costs are treated in there. So up until the early 80s, one component of the CPI was simply how much does it cost to buy a house? So it was an asset-based approach. Whereas it switched in 1983 to something called owner's equivalent rent. And that basically means if the owner of a house was going to rent it out, how much money would they receive in rental payments? So it's kind of taking into account the opportunity cost of living in your house rather than renting it out. And the claim is that this has lowered the rate of CPI, this change. I suppose one problem is that if you look at the price to rental ratios for housing, I mean, that's one valuation measure for housing. And during a period when prices are surging, that price to rental ratio can actually increase a lot. So that could be one problem with this kind of owner equivalent rent version of making adjustments. Yeah, I think the logic behind this change of excluding house prices from the CPI is the fact that homeowners are often pleased, right, when the price of their home increases, whereas people generally aren't pleased when inflation increases. And the prices of assets are not included in inflation. So the price of stocks and bonds and things like that, that doesn't go into the inflation measure. The inflation measure is consumption. So it's really what you need to live. What's really interesting, that there was a 1996 commission called the Boskin Commission, which looked at how CPI was being calculated. And it did support this methodology of rental equivalents for home ownership. And it even actually argued that CPI should treat other goods in this way, other long duration goods, so things like cars and durable goods, that they should be like, how much would you actually get for this good if you rented it out rather than used it yourself? And it hasn't had that change implemented, but it was interesting that they thought this is the correct methodology, really. It's funny because with a lot of electric cars now, you're seeing some of them have got the option to lease it out to other people built into the software of the car. So you can just decide the price and then it automatically advertises the fact that your car's available for rent. So I think maybe in future that'll be more of a runner for automobiles than it is now. Yeah, it's basically Airbnb for cars, isn't it? Yeah, 
certainly at the moment, the, you know, the model is that you own a car, you don't let anyone else use it. So should we put the final nail in the shadow stats coffin, Roman? <laughs> because they publish like an alternative inflation measure. And I think it's roughly 7% higher on average over the past 40 years than the official CPI. Now, it just doesn't really stand up, does it, for multiple reasons? Well, I mean, what I'd do to sanity check it would be to go to the supermarket 10 years apart and look, OK, well, this is how much a peach cost 10 years ago. And this is how much it costs today. What would be the rate of inflation annualised over that period? Peach inflation. Yeah. What would the peachflation be between <laughs> those two periods in time? And does it kind of marry up with what they've said is the rate of inflation? Does it? So Ed Dolan, an economist, actually did this, didn't he? Yeah, so there's a great article where he kind of debunks shadow stats. So he looked at groceries in the US from 1982 to 2015. So that's a 33-year period, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And he found that if you use the shadow stats rate of inflation, so the 7% higher than the official rate, that would overestimate the cost of groceries by almost 300%. <laughs> so that's fairly out of whack, isn't it? So, for example, tomato sauce, the price in 1982 was 25 cents, and Shadowstat would have predicted that would go up to $2.64 by 2015, and the actual price was 80 cents or 79 cents. So CPI, which underpredicted, said it would be 61 cents. So, of course, CPI has undercounted the rate of inflation, but Shadowstats was way out. But if you look at any of the other categories which he dug into, so it's tuna, Pepsi, chicken breast, whole chicken, dish detergent, all of these categories, the pattern that you see again and again is that shadow stats hugely overpredicted by orders of magnitude the actual price that was observed after a 33-year period. Yeah. And I think the other sanity check that's worth looking at is how does GDP look? Because remember, GDP is done in real terms, right? So it's adjusting for the rate of inflation. So if you use the shadow stats rate of inflation rather than the actual rate, we would have been in constant recession for the past 20 years. Like it would be deflated by so much, the economy would be constantly shrinking. And you might think, oh, well, maybe it has been. Maybe we have been in recession for that long. But that just doesn't tally with sort of objective measures of output and consumption. So things like electricity consumption and freight and all these things that just show that that isn't the case. We haven't been in a multi-decade recession. So talking about incentives, the people who usually use something like shadow stats would be gold bugs because they make the point that gold is a really good inflation hedge, which of course it isn't. Usually gold just keeps in line with the rate of inflation, like any commodity would. And of course, gold 2.0, or at least gold bugs 2.0, is now cryptocurrency enthusiasts. And they also use something like shadow stats because they also think incorrectly that cryptocurrency is a very good inflation hedge. So these are the kind of people that make the claim that the dollar's going to die, it's going to be inflated away to be worthless. And you know, right now, when inflation is running like nearly 10%, <laughs> I think we all have that sort of suspicion in the back of our minds, which we have to fight. <laughs> But what you have to understand is that over a long period of time, inflation has been kept under control very well over the last 20, 30 years. Since the Volcker period. Yeah, so since the Volcker period in the late 70s and early 80s. So I think you have to understand people's motives when they use something which makes inflation look really big. They're trying to talk up their asset class, usually, and they're using this slightly dodgy measure of inflation to justify it. 
But also, right, inflation is so high right now, you don't need to talk it up any more than it really is. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> it is really bad. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I mean, in terms of the quality of life and in terms of wage growth, this is a disaster. There's no way to sugarcoat the numbers. It's simply appalling. Certainly don't chocolate coat it. Go to peanut if you need to do anything. Oh, very good. <laughs> I mean, there is one aspect of this kind of scepticism about inflation, which I do agree with, which is that the stats show that inflation, experienced inflation, is far worse for the poor than it is for the rich. So this argument goes something like the poor spend more of their money as a percentage on food, on fuel, on these things which have typically been at the higher rate of growth end of inflation, whereas the rich spend more money on discretionary goods, like your champagnes, <laughs> that kind of thing, where the price acceleration hasn't been so bad. And there's good stats from the IMF which shows this is true across basically every country in the developed world, but is particularly bad in the UK where the latest stats from the IMF show inflation for the richest 20% of households is around 6%, but for the poorest 20% of households is over 15%. So that's a massive difference. Some people call this the poverty premium, which means that, for example, with energy, if you're on a meter where you have to put coins into a meter, it's usually much more expensive than, say, paying for gas or electricity in the usual way. And in fact, there's someone called Jack Monroe in the UK who has been monitoring the price of budget brands in supermarkets because her thing is that she does recipes which are on a budget. Yeah, she's brilliant. She gets a lot of stick, which I think is completely unfounded. But she's been showing that a lot of these very cheap brands have actually increased in price hugely recently. So if you are trying to feed a family on a budget, it's become almost impossible. And her campaigning's really worked. For example, a lot of the supermarkets have lowered their budget brand prices. And stopped withdrawing the line. So I think that was her point as well, which was that some of those basic brands are disappearing. So you have to you know, jump up to double the price to buy your Heinz soup or whatever it might be. But she's actually creating her own index, I think, her own inflation index. So something like Shadow Stats, hopefully not as dodgy. Yeah, so it's based on the Vimes Boots Index. Have you heard of this? Nope. I thought you would have, because it comes from a Terry Pratchett novel. No, I don't read Terry Pratchett. I only read hard sci-fi. <laughs> I don't know the difference. <laughs> I don't read any sci-fi, but I understand the concept for this index comes from one of his novels in the Discworld series. And it uses the boots, for example. It says a rich man can buy boots that cost more than the poor person, but they last their whole lifetime. Whereas the poor person is spending maybe half the price on a pair of boots but they have to buy a new pair of boots every two years, right? So the poor is experiencing a lot higher rate of inflation in that example. This was the inspiration for Jack Monroe to think we should have almost a separate inflation index for what it's like to be poor. And the ONS, who calculates inflation in the UK, has kind of got on board and said, yeah, this would be a good thing to do. And they're thinking about doing a personal consumption basket so you can sort of adjust the overall average rate of inflation for your specific circumstances. But I guess now with apps which can monitor what we buy in real time, it is possible to work out meflation. This is an idea that Jason Zweig, who's one of the writers for the Wall Street Journal, a brilliant writer, he's so funny, but also so insightful. He came up with this idea of meflation which is, you know, everybody has their own consumption basket and that's what you really care about. So why not, you know, have a basket for inflation which is specific to you? And it would be really interesting, wouldn't it, to compare it with CPI? 
And I think it would be very important for investors when it comes to concrete problems like planning your retirement. You need to know what you're spending your money on more than what the average rate of inflation is. But I think the other interesting aspect from a planning perspective is how your consumption basket changes as you age. You know, at the moment, for example, Michael, right now you're looking after a baby and you have to buy all the stuff that goes with that. And it's unbelievable how much gear you need to keep this little person alive. Yeah, I tend to just try and borrow it off everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really smart. And then as you get older, that consumption basket really changes. And, you know, if you reach your 70s and 80s, then again, it'll change radically. So that's why I think having a CPI which adjusts with age would also be useful for planning. Because, you know, you spend less as you get older and older unless you go into care. And the type of things which you buy also change. And in order to plan what your requirements will be in old age, that would be really useful to know that. So just to sum up then, Romin, I think a lot of people do have this perception that the cost of living is really bad. Now, you know, in 2022, it is really bad. We've got official inflation potentially going up to 13% later this year in the UK. So that's bad. But I think people think over the decades, it's been really bad. And I'm not able to afford as good a quality of life as my parents or as I would have been able to 20 years ago. But there's kind of two components to that, isn't there? There's obviously inflation, which, as you say, has been kept relatively well under control up until now. But there's also wages. And maybe it's the wages not growing very fast, which is the bigger problem here. I guess you're kind of indifferent as to which of them it is which is going up or down. Because really all you want is for your wages to rise faster than inflation, or in line with inflation, certainly. And as long as that's true, your standard of living in terms of services, goods that you can buy, doesn't decrease. And the same is true of your investments. You know, you have to beat the rate of inflation. What really matters is your real rate of return. But in terms of wage growth, yeah, I mean, it's just been appalling in some countries. For example, in the UK, we've basically had no wage growth in real terms over the last decade or so, or even longer. If you want to learn about how you can invest to overcome problems such as inflation and to beat inflation, then why not join our community here at pensioncraft.com? Just go to our website to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why does the Federal Reserve look at core PCE inflation rather than CPI? So maybe let's start with what is PCE inflation and how does it differ to CPI? Okay, so PCE stands for Personal Consumption Expenditures and it's produced by a different organisation in the United States. So it's the Bureau of Economic Analysis that publishes this. And the three differences are based on the formula which they use. So for PCE, it's something called the Fisher Ideal Formula. So again, it's that weighting approach. You know, how do you weight prices over time? And then the weights themselves for the consumption basket are also different. So CPI is based on a consumer expenditure survey, which isn't updated very often. And for PCE, it's based on various business surveys. And then finally, the scope is different between the two. So, for example, the CPI is based on urban households, whereas PCE is also based on institutional purchasing. So, for example, if the government buys medical services, that'll be included in PCE, but it won't be included in CPI. So maybe that's why the Fed uses this then, because I heard them say it's a broader and timelier measure of consumer behaviour than the CPI is. Yeah. And and one of the points that Powell makes during his press conferences is actually they usually come back into line over some period of time. So again, you know, there will be differences over the short term, but they measure pretty similar things. 
But the other thing which the Fed does is to strip out the volatile components. And this is another thing which really angers people on YouTube, which is if you talk about core inflation, where you take out energy and food prices because it's less volatile, that tends to really rile people because they say, oh, but energy and food prices really matter. Of course they do. I mean, I've still got to fill up my car, whether Jerome Powell looks at it or not. I still have to fill up my car and I've got to eat. But if you plot core versus headline inflation, and headline inflation includes the volatile components, all you see is two lines, one of them which wobbles up and down a lot and converges on the other one. Actually, I'd like to use a really cheesy metaphor here, which is to mention my dog, Teddy. So he's recently worked out how to stalk. And I can tell if he's going into stalk mode because he holds his head really steady in order to kind of track his prey. Oh, yeah, I've seen this on Attenborough shows, like a lion will be creeping through the bush. Yeah, leopards do it, lions do it. Any kind of hunting animal will keep their head absolutely steady as their body moves. Steady Teddy. Steady Teddy. And the Fed has to do the same thing. Steady Feddy. Because, <laughs> you know, they can't use these volatile measures of inflation. Because let's say that inflation spikes temporarily for just a couple of months because of very high energy prices, and then it falls back. What the Fed can't do is rush out and hike interest rates by 5% when, in fact, it was just a volatile transient component in inflation. Yeah. So there is a nuance here, which is that the Fed's mandate is to target that broad measure of inflation. But to best do that, they look at something else. They look at this thing without food and energy. (laughs) It's a better predictor of future inflation because if you imagine monetary policies like steering a super tanker and there's actually a delay between raising interest rates and its effect on the economy. So what you don't want is to overreact in the short term to something which might simply disappear. And if you are steering the tanker, you want a measure which will predict where we'll be in, say, three months, six months' time when policy has its effect. So that's why this predictive nature of these core measures and PCE is really useful. Yeah, and there's another measure which sometimes gets mentioned, which is the Dallas Fed trimmed mean PCE, which is trying to solve the same problems as core PCE, I think. Yeah, because it takes out the most extreme prices inside the basket. But it's the same idea, and it's also a better predictor of future inflation. Yeah, so whereas core inflation always strips out food and energy, it's fixed what gets stripped out of the basket, the trimmed mean strips out at each interval whichever is the most volatile components. Seems a bit weird when you're thinking about it because inflation's never going to look that bad if you're stripping out the really volatile bits. But it's on both ends of the curve, the ones that have gone massively up and the ones that have gone massively down. But there obviously has been research published by the Fed and other organisations looking at core PCE and trimmed mean PCE, and it finds that both of these measures are less volatile than total inflation, but importantly, they have the same average inflation rate over long periods of time, which is what you've said. They converge back. They are better predictors of future inflation than the broad measure of inflation, and critically, they're less subject to large revisions. So this is the other thing about inflation. The stats just keep getting updated and updated as more data comes in. I guess at some point in future, it'll be possible to have a kind of nowflation where literally the Fed can update the rate of inflation almost on a daily basis. We're not quite there yet, I don't think, but it's possible. And the other one is vibeflation. Just what do people feel in their bones? Inflation <laughs> actually is. Because <laughs> that's what politicians care about, right? It's vibeflation. Well, they do look at inflation expectations, don't they? Which is kind of that. Yeah, because what people actually anchor their expectations on will be headline inflation. And that's another problem the Fed recently mentioned, which is that if you look at expectations, it's based on headline. It's based on gasoline prices, food prices, 
Whereas what they're targeting, of course, is not headline. But of course it's based on headline, right? That is what we spend. Why would I, as a consumer, care what the Fed is stripping out of the basket? But the Fed's in this difficult situation now, which is that it has to also somehow guide people not to anchor their expectations higher. Because if they do, inflation can become kind of entrenched. Yeah, they won't win that battle. People are going to anchor based on experienced inflation. Well, you say that. But in fact, if you look at inflation expectations, they've been tumbling recently. So people clearly believe that things are getting better. But that might simply be because gasoline prices have come down a lot recently. Yeah, Biden sort of willed it into happening, didn't he, by tweeting out. That's right, it was his tweet which made it come down. Yeah, he tweeted out, (laughs) drop the prices at the pump. It worked. (laughs) I mean, it's not how economics usually works. I bet politicians wish it was. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.